Welcome to Marx's Voice, bringing you ideas and analysis from Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net where you can donate and subscribe to our paper online and help support us in the struggle for socialism. On the 15th of August, 1649, Cromwell landed in Ireland with a force of 12,000 troops at his back. Ever since that day, the name of uh, Oliver Cromwell has been cursed in Ireland for, 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 for generations. The worst curse that you could have was the curse of Cromwell be upon you. And the reason for this hatred, I think, will become clear. Perhaps I can't deal with it in detail, but it should become clear in the course of today's discussion. Now, the first thing to understand is that the English Civil War did not end with the execution of Charles I and the crushing of the level as it continued. There was, there had already been two civil wars, now there was a third civil war. Because Charles, of course, had an heir, Charles II, his son, who now became, of course, the pretender to the throne of England and was immediately recognized by some foreign powers. Holland was particularly belligerent. There were wars with Holland, which I haven't got time to deal with. But immediately the Scottish leaders declared for Charles uh, II, on condition, of course, that he recognized the covenant. And even more alarmingly, the Irish rebels declared in favor of Charles Stuart. So that there was an urgent need to, to settle accounts, if you like, with the Irish before there would be a war with Holland. I think that was one of the main reasons for the urgency with which Cromwell was dispatched to the other side of the Irish Sea. Now Cromwell, of course, had different reasons for this, and it's worth examining these reasons. First of all, as we know, he was a dedicated uh, Puritan, and therefore bitterly hostile and antagonistic towards uh, Roman Catholicism. He had a burning hatred of uh, Catholicism, as many of the Puritans did. And he particularly was frankly out for revenge. He made no no bones about it. He he said so. He wanted to take revenge on the Irish for the massacre of of the English and Scottish Protestants, which had occurred a few years earlier, which caused quite a stir in England, as you will remember. He he held the Irish Catholics personally responsible for this massacre, and he wanted to take revenge. He saw himself as the hand of God, if you like in this uh, great task. Yes, but he also had other reasons, more practical reasons for, for, for going to Ireland. You will recall, I think we said this last week, we dealt with the crushing of the levelers. Uh, Oliver Cromwell uh, suffocated, strangled the English Revolution as a popular revolution at Burford when he crushed the, the leveler revolt. Yes, but it wasn't uh, the end of the matter by any manner of means. I and mean, he, he still had to face a very uh, mutinous, rebellious soldiery, thoroughly uh, influenced by the the ideas of the levelers and uh, not at all keen to go to Ireland. So he had to convince them of the necessity of of this. 
And therefore, for him, the idea of a kind of a crusade against Roman Catholicism in Ireland, that was quite a good way of uh, diverting the troops' attentions away from uh, their uh, social and uh, revolutionary aspirations. So let's be clear about it. This invasion of Ireland was a thoroughly counter-revolutionary and a reactionary act. And as I mentioned last time, that the, the levelers, as the most advanced section of the revolution, actually were opposed to uh, invading Ireland on the grounds that the Irish people were fighting for their rights and that the English people had not yet attained their rights and therefore why should they interfere in, uh, in Ireland. More than that, I don't think I mentioned it last time, it's worth mentioning, I believe that the levelers, levelers were the only ones in, in England that stood for the emancipation of the Catholics. They were in favor of toleration to be extended to everybody, including the Roman Catholics. And had that been carried out, I think it would have been an enormous gain for the revolution and it would have disarmed the, uh, it would have disarmed the, uh, the royalists in Ireland. But uh, that was not to be. The revolution was strangled at, uh, at Burford and therefore it took an entirely different direction as we will see. Now, of course, uh, as I said, the name of Cromwell is a, a very black name in Ireland. There's reason for it. And the reason, part of it is due to <clears throat> quite a, a terrible event which occurred as soon, more or less as soon as he arrived in, in Ireland. He proceeded against the town of Drogheda. I think that's how it's pronounced, the town of Drogheda, where 3,000 uh, troops including not just Irish rebels, but also English cavaliers, English royalists. Were, the, I think the chap in charge of the, the officer in charge of the town was an Englishman, an English royalist. Drogheda was quite a, a well-defended town and evidently the royalists thought that they were going to make a stand until such time that they could be reinforced from other areas. Now Cromwell was no fool, was aware of this and therefore he decided to take drastic action. On the 10th of September, he issued a summons to the garrison to, to, to surrender, which was promptly rejected. They thought they could withstand a siege. They had stout walls and stout defences. They thought they could hold out. Yes, they were sadly mistaken. The following day, September the 11th, after a severe uh, artillery barrage which, which breached the, the defences of this town, Cromwell ordered the parliamentary troops to, to storm the town, which they did. And no quarter was given. No quarter means no mercy, no, take no prisoners. And the entire garrison was, uh, was massacred. And Cromwell, far from seeing any problem, with this, had no problem at all. In fact, I've got here this, the, the, the dispatch which he sent to parliament to, to report the, the events of Drogheda. I quote, I believe that we put to the sword the whole number of the defendants, the whole number of the defendants. I do not think 30 escaped. Those that did are safe in custody for the Barbados, in other words, to be sold as slaves and sent to the West Indies, which happened to quite a lot of people in Ireland at that time. Now, the merciless slaughter of, of, of the whole garrison such a barbaric act that it, it captured the popular imagination more than anything else. Yeah, but we must be a little bit careful on this. It was a terrible event, uh, of course, no question about that. But in the context of the times and military standards of the times, it wasn't all that unusual. You know, the, a town uh, would be given uh, the offer of surrender 
on terms. If they didn't accept, then quite often the garrison would be put to the sword. This was common practice, for example, during the 30, 30 years war. It wasn't unusual at that time. There was no such thing as the Geneva Convention. And therefore, we must be careful not to interpret the events of those days in modern, uh, through modern, uh, modern eyes. Uh, and incidentally, in general, even Irish authors have admitted that in general, Cromwell's conduct in the military sense was probably better than most. Uh, in the sense that, uh, unlike most of the armies which ravaged Ireland uh, at the time, Cromwell's soldiers were, were, were strictly disciplined. They were forbidden to plunder. Those that did were hanged and so on and so forth. Yes, but, but you see, never mind about Rochda, that was bad enough. But the real terrible crime, and it was an appalling crime, committed by Oliver Cromwell against the people, people of Ireland, is what happened happened afterwards. He won a military victory and he, what he did at Drogheda, he repeated at Wexford. And by the way, terror is uh, a weapon of warfare and he succeeded in terrorizing other garrisons who surrendered, many of them surrendered without a struggle after that. I don't necessarily blame them for, the, for this. Yes, but subsequently what was a, a terrible fate awaited the Irish? But it's not generally known. Not generally, Drogheda is known, but this this was far worse, infinitely worse than what took place in Drogheda. Cromwell had a plan which involved the nothing, nothing less than the wholesale transportation of all Catholic landowners in Ireland from their lands, the fertile lands that they occupied, to, uh, to they had to leave their homes, ordered overnight, leave their homes and their possessions, and migrate to the county of Connaught, which is a very barren area, where there was very little in the way of houses or transport or, or fertile land or anything. Furthermore, once they got there, once they arrived, these poor, bedraggled, hungry, starving men, women, and children, once they got there, they were forbidden to, these Irish people, forbidden to enter any walled town, and they were prevented from returning to their homes if they tried to do so. They'd be stopped by a cordon of soldiers. It was, it was like, a, like a ghetto. It's the only the kind of ghettos that were established in, by Hitler in Eastern Europe. I mean, it's a drastic comparison, but it's the only one that occurs to me. And, and from May the 1st, 1654, any Irish person found outside that area was to suffer the penalty of death. And just think of it. Here... The people of Ireland are being, uh, are being uh, treated as foreigners in their own land. It was a monstrous, uh, inhumane uh, policy, which led many people, men, women, and children, uh, dying of starvation and exposure. There's no question about it. it, it as well, even some of the commissioners that were employed, which are charged with carrying out, carrying out the transportation, even they were appalled at what they saw. And one of them reported to, to Dublin uh, that in this region, I quote, there was not enough water to drown a man, not enough trees to hang a man, and not enough earth to bury a man. That was the county of Connor. Terrible thing. And the, nobody knows, by the way, how many people died in Ireland, not just, not just in the Cromwell, it's not just Cromwell, the whole period for, before that, there were terrible massacres many deaths. Nobody knows how many people lost their lives in this uh, unfortunate land. It's been I've seen different calculations. One of them was that uh, maybe 
over 40 percent of the entire population has been wiped out just imagine that imagine if 41 percent of the population of britain was wiped out it's just uh, doesn't bear thinking about incidentally uh, the, the cromwell promised his soldiers that was one of the things he got them to fight in ireland they they had arrears of pay and they, as usually they were not being paid he offered them land in ireland that these poor devils that were driven off their land. But that land was supposed to have gone to Oliver Cromwell's soldiers. Very little of it did, I believe. Very few of Cromwell's veterans ever got to see any of this land. Instead, instead, overnight, there was a small army of English uh, crooks and speculators from the city of London who descended like hung hungry locusts on the land of Ireland uh, uh, to get their hands on these confiscated estates. And of course, since the soldiers were all hard up and sort of ready money, they, these gangsters would advance them very often trivial sums, and of course they'd part with the deeds. And therefore most of the land ended up in the hands of these gangsters, these crooks, which left a, a lasting scar on the entire uh, rural situation in Ireland. But I don't have time really to deal with that. It's a subject that needs to be studied in and of itself. But here this little detail about these speculators and crooks, this this already gives us an indication of the type of regime which is beginning to occur, which is going to beginning to come out of the wreckage of the English Revolution, which is, of course, a capitalist regime, a money regime. Following the Irish campaign, Cromwell crushed the Scottish army at uh, the Battle of Dunbar, and then went on to inflict the final decisive defeat on the Royalist forces at the Battle of Worcester. On the 13th of September, 1651, the Battle of Worcester was the final disaster for Charles, who suffered a tremendous defeat. And before nightfall, Charles was a fugitive. He had no army, and the story that he told himself is that he only escaped by hiding up an oak tree. By the way, that's where the word uh, the Royal Oak comes from in many English pubs today, which uh, some of you may know. Now, whether this story is true or false, I can't, uh, I can't really say. What is certainly true is that he fled after the battle. He fled immediately to France, where he remained uh, in a comfortable but impotent exile until the death of Oliver Cromwell. But now to turn back to England, because the English Revolution is not finished. Finished as a popular revolution, yes, but finished as, as, a, as a political and social revolution, no, not quite. And even an even bigger battle now faced Cromwell on the political plane. He actually said when he came back, he optimistically said, now that the king is dead and his son defeated, Cromwell said gravely to the parliament, I think it is necessary to come to a settlement. Oh yes, if only, if only it was that simple. If it was only that would sing. England was now a republic, it's true. The monarchy was abolished. The House of Lords was abolished. There was a big advance, actually, in many respects, in, 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 the, in the political sense. Parliament had become part of the British uh, constitution. The Church of England ceased to become the sole religious uh, institution. So far, so good. Yes, but there was a problem here. And the problem was the parliament itself. Now, the civil war had been fought, actually, to, for the establishment of the, the rule of parliament. 
Yes, but this parliament, the Rump Parliament, was by now notoriously corrupt. Notoriously corrupt. It was, if you like, a, a real bourgeois parliament. The war itself, of course, provided ample opportunities for, for swindling, uh, plundering the state, and uh, enriching yourself, which, of course, uh, many of these uh, parliamentarians did with gusto. There were numerous cases, public cases, of malversant of public funds dishonest contracts with the army, the army being sold all kinds of rubbish and rotten, rotten food and substandard arms and so on. And the inevitable scandals that arose, they became, this was the age of the printing press and the pamphlet, and people knew about this, and therefore there was uh, extreme, profound discontent, particularly in the ranks of the army, which as usual had not been paid. Now Cromwell, you see, he still was playing, playing a Bonapartist rule. I'm sorry to use a phrase which is a bit out of place, but he was still balancing between different classes and different forces, you know. Although he'd crossed the, the level, nevertheless, he was conscious of the need to keep the soldiers on, on board, keep them on his side, because that was his power base. And he won over the soldiers, actually, by taking up some of their demands, starting with the demand for a new parliament. Soldiers were demanding that this parliament, which now stank to high heaven, of course, that it be dissolved and replaced by new, new elections. They wanted election, elections on a broader suffrage. There's no, not much possibility of that. But this parliament, in effect, was, it was, it was now a legal fiction. It was the pretense of something that had long since outlived its usefulness and become, if you like, like a dry husk of wheat, of wheat empty of any real content. That's the fact of the matter particularly the, the non-payment of back wages, this uh, caused a tremendous friction between the army and parliament, which finally exploded in, into a direct uh, conflict on the 20th of April, 1653. The debate was raging in the House as to whether to dissolve, whether or not to dissolve, and so they, were, they wanted to continue, continue to meet for permanently, in effect. And in the course of this debate, Cromwell was not present, although he was a member of Parliament. He was, he was tipped off, he was informed that Parliament was sitting and had carried a resolution not to dissolve themselves, but to fill up the House with new elections, partial elections, that is. <laughs> Once you heard this, 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 it was too much. Cromwell was a man with a very quick temper. He flew into a rage and immediately hastened to Parliament without... Uh, dressing up properly without shaving, without combing his hair. <laughs> and uh, he turned up with a head, with a company of 300 musketeers at his back. He strode into the House of Commons, leaving his men just outside the door, just leaving the armed men just outside the door. And he calmly sat down, quietly sat down in his place. Yeah, for some time he sat with his arms folded, silently listening to the debate. Then at a the given moment, he looked up and said to Major Harrison, who was also in the, the, the house, this is the time. I must do it. Do what? Huh? At last, he cried out. Just imagine, in the middle of the, this parliamentary debate, my honored, my learned friend, all, <laughs> honorable so-and-so, so, so, <laughs> a, a voice like thunder echoes across the house. Your hour has come. The Lord hath done with you. Of course, this uh, contribution, this ex this unparliamentary language, of course, made people sit up and, uh, and wonder. 
the, the crowd of uh, MPs, of course, were, were outraged at this, at this terrible conduct. They sprang to their feet, protesting angrily. And as they did so, he just chided them scornfully. Come, 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 we've had enough of this. And striding into the center of the chamber, he clapped his hat on his head and shouted, I will put an end to your prating. Then stamping with his foot, this is, it is imagine the scene, stamping with his foot, it was a signal for the soldiers to enter. Here we are. Doors burst open, in come the armed men, one by one. And he starts berating them. You are a factious crew, Cromwell called out, and enemies of all good government. You are a pack of mercenary wretches and would, like Esau, tell, sell your country for a mess of pottage. And like Judas, betray your God for a few pieces of money. It is not fit that you should sit here any longer. You are no parliament. You should give place to better men. Ye sordid prostitutes, have you not defiled this sacred place and turned the Lord's temple into a den of thieves by your immoral principles and wicked practices? I command you, therefore, upon peril of your lives, to depart immediately out of this place. Go! Get you out. Make haste, you venal slaves. Be gone. Go in the name of God. Go. And as each of them passed before him, Cromwell greeted them with some choice language, referring to their particular sins and vices. He knew them all perfectly well, and he knew what they were about. Cromwell shouted to one, Thou art a whore, master. To another he exclaimed, Thou art an adulterer to a third, thou art a drunkard, a drunkard and a glutton, and thou an extortioner, and so on and so forth. The speaker refused to quit his seat until Harrison went up to him and offered his ha him a hand to come down, whereupon he did so. At this point Cromwell walked over to the speaker's uh, seat and picked up the mace, which, as you know, is a symbol of parliamentary authority. He picked it up from the table and turned to his men. What shall we do with this bauble? Here, take it away. And so they did. And having thus cleared the chamber, Cromwell was last to leave this empty space ordering the doors to be locked behind him. Parliament, therefore, was a spent force. Parliament had finished its uh, historic mission, really. It had exhausted any potential it might have had as a revolutionary force in the past, and it was now an obstacle, an obstacle that had to be swept away, and it was swept away, ruthlessly by Cromwell in the way that I've described. And this fact was perfectly understood by the majority of the people. You see, here's an important difference in the past. In the past, as you remember, an attempt to dissolve parliament would have met with an insurrection. People would have rushed to its defense. And now nobody rushed to defend the parliament as they'd done in the past. Nobody whatsoever. Cromwell actually commented ironically afterwards. I quote his actual words. So far as I could discern when they were dissolved, there was not so much as the barking of a dog 
or any general and vis visible repining at it. And that's perfectly true. No, nobody, but nobody mourned the passing of the Rump Parliament any more than anybody in Russia mourned the passing of the Constituent Assembly when that was dis dissolved, dispersed by the Bolsheviks in 1918. The difference was with what replaced it. And here there's a fundamental difference. In Soviet Russia, in Russia, the, the dissolution of the Constituent Assembly was a huge step forward for the revolution. That marked the passing of power from the bourgeois parliament, from the old bourgeois state, to the Soviets. Here, however, the process went into reverse. And so, in this dramatic way, Karl Marx commented on that favorably, comparing Cromwell to Napoleon. This was, uh, really speaking, real power passed at this moment from parliament to the army, and from the army to the one man who stood at his head. That's Oliver Cromwell. And in effect, in effect this was really a recognition of the fact that the revolution was dead. All the old dreams of people that they were fighting for a kingdom of freedom and the kingdom of God on earth and had died. It was now totally dead. And Parliament now, England now was in the hands of one man, Oliver Cromwell. And yet, and yet, and yet, the old dream still lived on somehow as a kind of ghostly echo of the past or a faded image in an old photograph or an old painting. Because in Ju July 1654, Cromwell established a new, what he called a nominated assembly, not elected, a nominated assembly, which soon earned the nickname of the Barebones Parliament. You might have heard of it. Why the Barebones Parliament? Well, one of the characters, there were some characters in this parliament, one of them was quite, uh, got quite a reputation at the time. His name was, believe it or not, Praise God Barebones. <laughs> there were some very unusual names among the Puritans at the time. His name was that. That's how he was baptized, so his birth certificate. Be Praise God Barebones. And he was a preacher, he was a radical preacher. This was a, ha a hand-picked assembly, a hand-picked body, made up of about, I think, 150 men set up by the army council at Cromwell's request. Now, why should he do this? Well, it's not, not easy to answer that question. Perhaps, perhaps he was uneasy in his own mind about the power that he now held in his hands. Maybe it was to soothe his conscience about the betrayal of, his rev of the revolutionary aspirations of the people. In fact, having destroyed the revolution in fact, he wanted somehow to recreate a fiction, a ghostly apparition of a revolutionary assembly instead of a real one. Well, but for whatever reason, I guess, for whatever reason, he decided to establish something like a representative body to replace the parliament. In the end, however, it was, uh, it was the sham parliament and not military rule that proved to be provisional. It was a kind of harmless surrogate for, for a genuinely revolutionary government, but it had no real powers. Incidentally, the Barebones Parliament was made up of all kinds of people. There were some conservative elements previously, former MPs of the uh, Rump Parliament. Yeah, but they were also radicals, revolutionaries even. Fifth monarchy man. Barebones, Barebones himself was, was a, a religious radical. And 
they did things which the Cromwell did not anticipate, because they weren't supposed to do. They were supposed to behave themselves. Well, they didn't behave themselves. They, they debated all kinds of thorny questions, particularly a question such as the abolition of tithes. That's the money that's paid to preachers in the church, which the radicals wanted to abolish. And other things, reform, reform of the laws. The fifth, men, the fifth monarchy men were insistent that the only laws that should be accepted are the laws that were in the scriptures, in the Bible, and so on. And in general, they were causing a lot of bother. They were protests and so on. So finally, uh, in December of that year, the, the, prompted by Cromwell, probably, the conservative members of the authority made a fuss, caused a crisis, accusing the radicals of destroying the clergy, the law, and above all, the property of English men and women. Now, they wanted to dissolve themselves, but uh, there was a minority. The majority were in favor of the, the majority gave up immediately. But there was a minority led by, I think he was a fifth monarchy man, actually, led by Major General Harrison and about 20 more who refused to go. They remained in the house in an attempt to pr prevent the dissolution. But these, uh, and they carried on the proceedings. These, however, were interrupted very soon by the entry of Colonel White at the head of a party of soldiers. He asked them, what, the, what, are you, what are you doing here? It's quite a comical exchange. He said, what are you doing here? To which they replied uh, seriously, we are seeking the Lord. And he answered ironically, then you may go elsewhere. For to my certain knowledge, he's not been here these many years. I thought that was a very addict. And with that, of course, the Barebones Parliament disappears into the mists of history, not with a ban, but a whimper. And here you have it. What do you have? What's left? What is left of all the titanic efforts and the revolutionary aspirations and the dreams and the programs? What is left is the dictatorship of one man. The revolution, the English revolution, ends up in the end as the dictatorship of one man. Yes, one man whose power rests fundamentally with the army, with the sword, ruled by the sword. That's about it. And yes, you could say in many ways, you know, if you're a superficial observer, might say, well, look, what was it all for? I mean, look, they got rid of one king, now they got another king. The levels actually said that. They accused Cromwell of being a king. And to all effects, you could say that, yes, he was. He had the powers of a king, there's no question about that. And even his, uh, his uh, enthronement, if you can call that, as, as later on, as we'll see next time, as the Lord protected, it was of great splendor. And so, although in general, in general, he still led a frugal existence. Cromwell himself was a, a man of modest taste, not in favor of a lot of show and uh, spectacularity. He was actually offered the, the, to become king. His supporters wanted to, to, to accept the position in which he refused, sensibly, because that would have really annoyed uh, the people who fought in the army and uh, the Republicans and so on. Plus the name of the king, it's, it's, it smelled bad. But in fact, in fact, yes, he had the powers of the king, there's no question about that. And yet, of course, the new monarchy was not the same lavish affair that you had under the Stuarts. There's a quote here, I can't remember where this comes from. Great regularity, however, and even austerity of manners were always maintained at his court, that's Cromwell. Some state was upheld, but with little expense and without any, any splendor. There's a different kind of monarchy, if you're going to call it that. 
And here's an interesting remark. The nobility, the aristocrats, the nobility, though courted by him, he wanted to be friends with the former aristocrats. Same as Napoleon. They also the French aristocrats despised him too. The nobility, though courted by him, kept at a distance and disdained to intermix with those mean persons who were the instruments of his government. I think that sums it up very nicely. The relationship between the old order, the old aristocracy, the old nobility, and the new aristocracy, if you're going to call them that, the new bourgeois aristocrats of uh, jumped up people of no rank. No rank and plenty of money, and that's about it. This is, a, this is in effect, a bourgeois republic. So the English Revolution, as I say, ends up in the dictatorship of one man. And in many ways, yes, it, it represented, you could say that it represented the old monarchical regime. Yes, but it had a very, very different class content. The precise nature of the differences, the real class nature of the English Revolution and its place in history are aspects which we will deal with in the next and final chapter. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marx's Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, or any major podcast provider, or visit our website at www.socialist.net. And if you're able to, please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.